time to open their Bibles. You good? All right. All right. Cease talking amongst yourselves. Let's get started. This morning's sermon will be the 51st and final sermon in John's Gospel. We began our journey through the Gospel of John on Sunday, October 10th, 2021. And we began exactly where John begins in the prologue, or the introduction. And this morning we end exactly where John ends, in the epilogue. Now here's the thing about epilogues. They can feel anticlimactic. And often they are. Epilogues are usually the part of the story where the author tries to tie up any loose ends. And John's gospel is no different. I mean, if you think about it, he really could have put the pin down after the resurrection, right? I mean, that would be the most powerful way to end the story. God dies. God gets up out of the grave. We all celebrate the end. But the thing about it is, the most exciting part of the story is rarely the end of the story. Jesus is the main character in John's gospel, but he's not the only character that we have been tracking with so far. You have the Romans, and you have the Jewish leaders, and you have the disciples. I think it's safe to say that the second most important character in John's gospel behind Jesus is actually Peter. Now, if the gospel ended right after the resurrection, we'd be left with some questions about this number two character. Whatever happened to Peter. This is a guy that we've been pretty invested in thus far. And he denied Jesus three times. And yet somehow when we get to the book of Acts, he is one of the main leaders in the early church. How did we go from one to the other? Well, that's what the epilogue is for. John's epilogue is the account of Jesus's third post-resurrection appearance to the disciples, wherein we find out what is to become of Simon Peter. I've got 12 points for you this morning. I'll give them to you as we go. For now, let me pray. Father, um, what we need most this morning is to hear from you. We all have ears, but we may not all be listening. So we pray, Lord God, that you will help us to hear. We pray that your voice will ring out from this pulpit and that we will hear you with pristine clarity, that your word will settle in our hearts and make us new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Point number one, back to work. There's a sense in which the first scene in chapter 21, the, the fishing miracle, is just setting up the next scene the infamous breakfast on the beach. And yet, I think there is still something for us to see here, quite a few things for us to see. First of all, when we find the disciples, we don't find them going out to the nations, healing the sick, feeding the poor, casting out demons, preaching the gospel. No, what we find is that they're back in Galilee, doing something much more mundane than all of that. They're fishing. They're back at work. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I do think that there is something for us to see here, namely that even the apostles, the leaders of the early church, hand-selected by Jesus, eyewitnesses to his testimony, they still had to get up and go to work. This is life. Even if you get saved on Sunday, you have to get up and go to work on Monday. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you don't have to set your alarm clock. I wish it did. When we follow Jesus in this life, we still have to go through the often mundane rhythms of life. When I was a missionary, uh, our life on the mission field in the jungles of Peru were filled with drama and intrigue and excitement and parasites. Oh my. But you know what else our lives were full of? 
work, routine, monotony, boredom, stress. And this is just part of life in a fallen world. But here's the thing, for the Christian, we know that the humdrum realities of life are being governed by a God who is anything but humdrum. And he is working them towards a purpose that is anything but humdrum. He's working your daily 5.30 in the morning wake-ups for the glory of his name and your eternal good. Point number two, the miracle. Verse 3 tells us that when Jesus called out to the disciples from the shore, they had been fishing all night and they hadn't caught a thing. And then right at quitting time, Jesus appears. The disciples didn't recognize him at first, which seems a little weird, right? He's resurrected from the grave. He was your master, Lord. You saw him twice already. But hey, listen, they're a hundred yards away. It's probably still dark out. They're exhausted. Give them a break. So Jesus calls out to them. He says, hey, in your Bibles, it says, hey, boys, but... It could be translated as like lads if you were in Scotland or hey guys or hey fellas. It's a term of affection. Hey guys, have you tried fishing off of the right side of the boat? Which is, you know, like the ancient equivalent of calling the IT guy. Yeah, my computer's not working. He's like, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? You know. This is the kind of question that I think would have been not only aggravating, but perhaps even insulting. I mean... These guys are fishermen by trade. You get me out on a boat, yeah, ask me which side I've tried fishing off of. I don't know what I'm doing. These guys are professional fishermen. They have been fishing all night in a boat that only has two sides. Have you tried the right side, guys? It's like, yeah, dude. (laughs) I've tried the right side. But for whatever reason, the disciples listened to the voice of the man standing on the shore. It's as if the sheep know his voice and they listen to it. So the disciples listen to his voice. They cast the net. They get a massive haul, a miraculous haul. Verse 11 says they they got 153 large fish. It's a catch so big that the net should have broken, but it didn't break. Now, The ESV study Bible says that the number 153, 153, is probably not significant. It's probably just an eyewitness report of how many fish were caught. I think I disagree. You see, the guy who wrote this gospel, John, he's the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation. right? John doesn't play fast and loose with numbers. He's a numbers guy. I'm pretty convinced that 153 is a number that is loaded with significance. Loaded. Having said that, I'm also equally convinced that spending the next 15 minutes trying to explain that to you and doing a whole numerology thing in the sermon would be pretty unedifying. So uh, if you're a member of Sixth Avenue, you should have gotten a link in your email this week with an article that you can read about this number 153. I'd encourage you to check that out. If you're like, Sean, I'm not a member, but I want to read that article, just shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. So back to the story. This miracle causes John, first of all, John, to recognize Jesus, which then compels Peter once he's like, wait, that is Jesus. It compels Peter to jump out of the boat and swim to the shore to go meet his master. Now, we're going to come back to this whole John-Peter thing in a minute. But for now, I want us to just stop and ask ourselves this question. Why did the miracle cause John to recognize Jesus? He didn't recognize him. The miracle happened. Then he did recognize him. Why? You know, sometimes Christians, we wonder why we don't see the great signs and wonders of the early church in our own lives. Right? Why don't we see all the miracles that they saw? Which is not to say that we don't see miracles. We absolutely do. But just not with the same intensity, with the same frequency, with the same level of obviousness. And some people say we don't see these miracles because we've lost the Holy Ghost power. Some say it's because we've just stopped asking. But I think the answer is probably more 
theological than that. It's probably even simpler and more satisfying than that. You see, friends, we have to remember that God is not like a divine Oprah, right? Just giving out random miracles to everyone in his studio audience. You know, you get a miracle and you get a miracle and you get a miracle, right? No, God gives out miracles for a very specific purpose. The purpose of a sign and wonder is to reveal, to authenticate, to bear witness. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. Whenever a sign and wonder is performed, it's done to reveal, authenticate, and bear witness. You think about Moses, you think about some of the prophets, you think about Jesus and the apostles. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 2. Speaking of the gospel, he says, The gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, while God bore witness... He verified, he authenticated their ministry by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So in John 21, this miraculous catch revealed and bore witness to the identity of Jesus. The disciples didn't know who the man on the shore was until... They saw the sign. Insert Ace of Base quote. In the book of Acts, the miracles of the apostles bore witness to their divine commission. But now that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, the apostles have passed away, the foundation of the church has been laid, we have Holy Scripture, the need for such signs and wonders has ceased. Because we have seen exactly who Jesus is. Amen. Point number three. One more time. One more time. Insert Daft Punk quote here. Man, the pastor's so hip. Ace of bass and Daft Punk in one sermon? Yeah, that's right. Look at my shoes. All right, back to the text. What I want us to see in this point, in point three, is that And I wish I had a pithier way of saying this, but I want us to see the power of one more time, of just trying one more time. Remember, the disciples have been fishing all night, right? It's easy for us to just read that and for it to not really mean anything for us, but they've been out there fishing for hours and hours and hours. And then Jesus comes along and he tells them, hey, Try one more time. And by his grace, their efforts bear fruit. Friends, this is what the Christian life is often like. This is what Christian ministry is like. And by Christian ministry, I don't just mean pastors and missionaries. I mean you. You're Christians. You all have a ministry. You're supposed to take the gospel to a lost and dying world and give it. You're the ambassadors of Christ and his gospel. So what do we do? We go out to the world, friends, family, fellow students, neighbors, co-workers. What do we do? We cast the net. We cast the net. We cast the net over and over. Hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Hey, can I just share the gospel with you? Hey, uh, I see that you're going through that. Let me share how the Lord helped me as I was going through that. We just, we cast and cast and cast. And sometimes it feels like nothing is ever going to happen. We have the same hard, awkward conversations. We strategize. We try to be creative. We, ch- we just we try again and again, and it feels like nothing. We can, we can lose hope. We can get so discouraged. We wonder if God has forgotten us. We wonder if he's even listening to our prayers. We begin to come to grips with the fact that maybe our marriage may not improve or our children may not get saved, or our friend, family member, or co-worker may not come to believe in the gospel. And listen, that may be the case. But friends, sometimes God is calling us to try one more time. I just can't help it. I gotta talk about Billy Cagle again. 
I'm sorry, you know I keep talking about him in his testimony, but guys, he was a pastor. How long, Billy? 37 years. Wasn't a Christian. His son, Andrew Cagle, knew he wasn't a Christian. It's one of the first conversations I had with Andrew. My dad's in the ministry. He's not really a Christian. I'm trying to share the gospel with him. Don't really know. I feel like I've tried and tried and tried. But Andrew kept praying. And the Lord did a miracle. When everything, how hopeless can you be? 37 years as a pastor, living in an unregenerate state, obvious to everyone but you. I wouldn't feel hope. I'd be like, yeah, you know, I tried for a long time, but he's gone. But the Lord had other plans. So my exhortation to you this morning is to not lose hope, to not give up. As long as someone is still alive, there is hope. Try one more time. Go ahead. Embarrass yourself. You you think that's going to matter when you're in heaven? You think that's going to matter if they get saved? If they get saved, you can embarrass yourself 50,000 times. But when they finally come to know the Lord, it won't, you won't even think about it. You won't even remember it. And if you do remember it, all you'll do is laugh about how silly it was and you'll rejoice. One more time. Cast that net. God can do something incredible. Point number four. The odd couple. The odd couple. It's fairly common for us to compare Peter and Judas. Right? And we're going to do that this morning. It's, it's a good comparison. But you should know that the last half of John's gospel, basically from like chapter 13 onward, we actually see another interesting comparison. It's the comparison between Peter and John. Now what I want us to see in this point is how the Lord uses very different people to build up his church. To say it another way, the Lord builds weird teams. Let's look around this room. In uh, her fantastic biography of Abraham Lincoln, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin, she shows the political genius of Abraham Lincoln and the way that he was able to maintain a cabinet of very different men, men with peculiar and often contrasting personalities and gifts and sin patterns. And I remember as I was reading that book, I just kept thinking, this is just what Jesus did. He brought together a bunch of weird people who seemed like they shouldn't be on the same team. Tax collector and a zealot. The guy who kills the tax collectors, right? He brought together a Peter and a John. There's just a study in contrast. John makes it to the tomb first and waits outside of the tomb. I'm going to look around. I'm not going to act too rashly. Peter shows up. What did I miss? Let's go inside. No thinking, just doing. They recognize Jesus on the shore. What happens? Peter jumps out of the boat, starts swimming to the shore. What does John do? What about the fish and the other guys in the boat? We have to be responsible, am I right? You know, Peter didn't have to jump out of the boat. The text tells us that they were a hundred yards away, right? That would have taken like five minutes to row in. He could have been helpful to the other disciples. 153 large fish probably needed some help, Peter. Peter and John could not be more different. And yet the Lord pairs them together for the sake of his mission. It's like a real life buddy comic. And I want you to see that this is what God does. You can see this pattern from the disciples all the way through church history up to our own day. Augustine and Jerome, right? Rome is sacked. The city is falling. Jerome, oh no, what are we going to do? Augustine's like, it'll be okay. Two very different inclinations. Luther and Zwingli in the Reformation. Piper and MacArthur. One of my favorite interviews with John Piper and John MacArthur, the two Johns, John squared if you will. They're sitting, in, and, uh, and Piper is talking about this point in his ministry where he was in midlife, and he was depressed, and he was under attack, and he was struggling, and he said, I just sat down on the steps outside of my house on the front porch, and I just wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept. And he looked at John MacArthur, and he said, do you know what I mean? And John was like, no. 
I've never done that before. I just, it's too much work to do to sit around crying, you know. <laughs> the tale of two Johns. I even think about some of the women in this church. For the sake of alliteration, I'll stick with the A's, Allison and Amber. I think about the way that the Lord has used these two women and how incredibly different they are. And the examples could be multiplied, and the Lord uses us together. Now, my feeling is that if Peter were a member of this church, some of us would write him off prematurely. That's my feeling. We would see some character flaws. We would see some personality quirks and eccentricities. And we would say, this guy? Now look at John. Huh? John's the guy. He's, he's, he's considered. He's thoughtful. He's patient. He's, he's wise. But Jesus saw that Peter could be used in his own unique way for the sake of the kingdom. And not only that, but Jesus saw that Peter and John, they needed each other. And friends, I want us to see that we need each other in this church. Even as I just think about the, the, the way that the Lord has built up the elders in this church. Grant's on sabbatical right now, but before he was on sabbatical, you take me, Will, Grant, and Shane, just very different people with different gifts, different personalities, different instincts, and yet the Lord uses us together to lead and to shepherd the church. Maybe there's someone in our congregation right now who aspires to do some kind of work for the Lord, who wants to be involved in ministry, and you've seen them have some personality struggles. You've seen some quirks, some eccentricities. Maybe they've struggled in some way publicly and you've seen it and you've been tempted just to write them off. Don't be so quick to do that. The Lord may have something in store for them that you can't even begin to imagine. Remember, the Lord does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Point number five, breakfast on the beach. Guys, I know that we haven't been super heavy in the text thus far. We're going to be. Don't worry. We're gonna, the, the majority of the sermon is coming when we get to point seven. Another thing that we see in this story that Peter didn't see is this. As Peter excitedly jumped out of the boat and rushed towards Jesus, he was actually rushing headlong into his own rebuke. But before that difficult conversation, Jesus wanted to have breakfast. Now, much has been said about Jesus' cooking his disciples' breakfast as an act of service, and, and rightly so. That's true. We should all strive to imitate Jesus and be servant leaders. But there's something else here that I want to draw your attention to. I want us to see that hard conversations are best had in the context of deep relationships. That's what a meal represents, right? Think about Jesus' ministry to the disciples. Did he show up in Galilee, put out flyers, send out the Evite? Jesus is going to be in town for two days only. Come sit under his teaching. The Messiah can tell you all of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. No, it wasn't a weekend experience with Jesus. He was with them, lived life with them for three years. When Jesus has to have this hard conversation with Peter, he doesn't just show up and say, Peter, come here, let's talk, and then leave. They hang out. They eat together. Verse 15 says that it was only after they finished their meal together that Jesus turned to Simon and had the hard conversation. Now listen. There are some ways that you can mishear me right now. There's some ways you can misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't want you to think that you can only have hard conversations over dinner, right? That's not what I'm saying. And I also don't want you to fear that if anyone invites you for lunch or breakfast, that they have something hard to say to you, all right? That, that's not what I'm saying. The point is just simple. Don't overthink this. Here's the simple point. It's easier to have hard conversations with someone that you know and love well enough to share a meal with, right? It's one of the easiest ways that we can build those kinds of sticky relationships. Uh, I was talking with Adam and Julia one day when we went out to lunch for, what, like the third time or something like that? 
and you guys are from Portland, right? Eh. They were like, I love Portland, it's great. No, they, they were like, hey, is this normal? Do people eat together this much? And I'm like, yes. Yes, at least in our church, we do. You have to eat three times a day. I do intermittent fasting. Okay, you get the point. Most of us eat three times a day. Why not use those times to build life together? One of the things that I love to see is when our calendar has an open spot. Like, I'm like, you know, it's, it's Friday, and I'm like, okay, have lunch with someone, and then, oh, there's no dinner plans tonight. I'm just like, let me call some people from the church and have them over. I have to eat. Might as well eat with some brothers and sisters in Christ. Build that relationship. Thicken the love. Strengthen the capital so that, well, one, just for its own sake, but also the day may come where you have to have a hard conversation with that brother or sister and hopefully you have built so much love and relational capital that it kind of softens the blow. Point number six, rebuke and restoration. Back when we were in chapter 18, I told you that there was something very significant about the charcoal fire in that story. Turn with me back to chapter 18. <coughs> Chapter 18, verse 18. <clears throat> Remember Peter's in the courtyard? This is where he denies Christ. And in verse 18, we read these words. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. And, and we, we asked, why does John include that detail? He didn't have to say charcoal fire. He could have just said they made a fire. Why did he say charcoal fire? Well, the answer comes in chapter 21. Look at verse 9. When they, the disciples, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. What I want you to see here is that there is a sense in which Jesus, as he is restoring Peter, is recreating the scene of Peter's denial. We're in the early morning hours, right? The, the time when you don't really know if it's night or day. There's a charcoal fire providing warmth. There is a threefold repetition. Do you remember the threefold repetition from chapter 18? I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. And now in chapter 21, the threefold repetition, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he recreating this scene in this way? Well, ultimately, he's doing it because he wants to be reconciled with Peter. He wants Peter to be restored so that he can use him. But before Jesus can use Peter, he has to show him his sin. And notice the way that Jesus goes about showing him his, his sin. Isn't this just so wise of Jesus to do it this way? He's setting the scene. He's affecting not only his mind and his emotion, but also his senses. As he begins to talk with Peter about his failure, he employs something like the Socratic method he gets to the heart of the matter with questions that slowly peel back the layers of Peter's heart. Jesus doesn't ask Peter about his love because he's ignorant of it. Jesus knows the contents of Peter's heart. Jesus is the one who gave Peter a new heart that is capable of loving Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask Peter about his love because he needs a personal reassurance. Right? Like an insecure teenager in a toxic relationship. Do you really love me? No. Jesus asked Peter about his love three times because he needs Peter to come to grips with the reality of his sin. Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know that he's eager but slow. Right? He's dense. I love that Peter's in the Bible. It gives me hope. I'm just like, yes, okay, you can work with me. 
What we see here is that on the third iteration of this question, this do you love me question, Peter finally understands what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Just imagine how crushing this must have been for Peter to have to look at his sin squarely in the eyes. To have to look directly at his failure and his betrayal. Imagine how crushing this must have been. We're talking about Peter, the water walker. We're talking about Peter, the Christ professor. We're talking about Peter, the ear chopper offer. Peter, the I'll never deny you, even if all of the rest do. Peter, the guy who flings himself out of the boat and swims to his master in joy and excitement. Imagine how the weight of this failure must have settled on him. There's something in our culture today that says that you should never feel bad about yourself. You should never really feel the weight of your guilt. You should never feel shame. It's not from the Bible. Guilt and shame are not, incongruit, are, are, are not out of congruity with the gospel. Jesus wants Peter to have this sinking feeling of embarrassment. He wants the weight of sin to wash over him like a tidal wave. He wants the dagger to go right into Peter's heart. Peter, do you love me more than all these other disciples do? You think you love me, but do you really love me more than all these other disciples do? And Peter's like, Lord, you know me. I'm Peter, baby. I love you the most. And then, and then Jesus asked him two more times, and on the third time, the, I love this because I've been through it. Someone is just being so patient and gentle with me, trying to help me see my sin, and I've been so hard-headed, I've been such an idiot, and I haven't been able to see it, and then all of a sudden, boom, it hits me. I realize, no, I'm the jerk. That's what happens with Peter, and he realizes in the moment That all of his confidence, all of his bravado, all of his zeal, it all just crumbles down around him. And the only thing that's left is grace. Which is good because that's all we really need. Has God ever put you through something like this before? Where he's just made you stare at your sin? Has he ever been so kind as to show you that you are not all you think yourself to be? If he has, you should thank him because it is a mercy. It is a grace. And only when you know that you are nothing can you really begin to believe that he is everything. Only when you know that you're nothing can you then be used most powerfully to accomplish everything For the sake of his name. Why is Jesus holding this mirror up to Peter's face in this way? I mean, if you stop and think about it, he he didn't have to do this in one sense. Like, from our perspective, he didn't have to do it this way. He could have just pretended that nothing ever happened. Right? Peter was happy to do that. You think Peter was going to bring up the denial? Not a chance. This is how we operate in some of our relationships, right? Get into a big fight with your spouse before bed. Wake up in the morning. Go to work without maybe seeing each other, right? Come home, just act like nothing ever happened. Jesus could have done that with Peter. I mean, if you stop and think about it, (laughs) dude, Jesus got up out of the grave, right? Let's just let bygones be bygones. Whatever happened before the resurrection stays before the resurrection. We don't have to talk about that. Jesus shows us a better way. In this encounter with Peter, Jesus shows us that without repentance, there is no reconciliation. Without the recognition of sin, there can be no restoration. 
This is the difficult path of Christian love and discipleship. Grace is real, friends, but, and so is forgiveness, but grace never brushes sin under the rug. True reconciliation can only come when we're willing to look our sin in the eye and call it by its name. And the repentance has to be genuine, like our call uh, to repentance this morning, right? There's a, a worldly sorrow and grief, and then there's a godly sorrow and grief. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry that I got caught. I'll be smarter next time. I'm sad that I have to experience the consequences of my sin. But godly grief says, I've sinned against you, Lord. Please forgive me. I wonder if there's anything in your relationship, insert relationship, your relationship with a fellow church member, a relationship with your children, a relationship with your parents, relationship with your spouse, relationship with your pastor. I don't, I don't know, just there's an endless list of relationships. Just scroll through those and ask yourself, is there anything that you have brushed under the rug because it's easier just to not talk about it? Is there any relationship that you've robbed of the joy of gospel reconciliation because you've just decided to let it go. I'm not saying you need to go back and like unearth every fight that you've ever had with your spouse. I'm talking about something significant. Sometimes there's wisdom in letting it go, giving time for things to settle. You're going to need some wisdom to help you think through that. I'd be happy to think through that with you. Now, I want you to also consider the counseling chops on Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't focus on Peter's emotions here, which I think we might be tempted to do if we were in, in this situation, right? How, how are you feeling, Peter? How, how are you feeling? He doesn't ask Pater, uh, Peter if he feels bad. Instead, he asks Peter, do you love me? So what Jesus does is he just gets right to the heart of the matter. He gets to the thing that's underneath our emotions. I just wonder how much healthier our relationships would be if if we were committed to talking about sin and working through sin in this way. Instead of getting bogged down in the litigation of petty details and fickle emotions, what if we just talked about sin for what it is, a corruption of love? What if instead of talking about sin at a superficial level, we got down to the level of the heart. You'll also notice that Peter does not, uh, excuse me, Jesus does not rub Peter's nose in his sin. He's trying to take him right up to the point of awareness of his sin so that he feels guilt and not any further than he needs to. He cuts him, but he doesn't cut him too deeply. He could have. In the, in the eyes of carnal flesh, he would have been justified. He denied me three times. He gets what he deserves. When I needed him most, where was he? Denying me. That's not what the gospel does. In our church covenant, we talk about this kind of accountability that Jesus employs with Peter. Here's the language that our church covenant uses. We say this. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And we will faithfully admonish and entreat. Correct is another word for that one another as occasion may require. In this church, we strive to imitate Jesus in this interaction with Peter. We want our accountability to be born of affection, right? Not self-righteous gotcha-ism. Oh, I saw him drinking a beer at Applebee's. I'm going to tell the pastor, right? We correct people because we love them and because we know that sin is hurting them And even if it costs us, and it usually does, we'll have that hard conversation. You'll also notice the language in our church covenant. It says we will faithfully admonish. Well, faithful to who? Well, faithful to God and faithful to your fellow Christian. Faithful to love them, to tell them the truth, to have that difficult conversation. And then, of course, like Jesus with Peter, the aim of our correction is always restoration. Jesus didn't come and show Peter his sin and then send him off into the abyss. No, he wanted to restore him so that he could be useful. So let me just take a moment here and address some of our prospective members. 
And I don't just mean people who are in membership classes. I mean, if you are sitting here and you're thinking, I might like to become a member of Sixth Avenue Community Church. I'm talking to you. Friends, this is the Christian life. What what we've just talked about here, this loving accountability, correction, reconciliation, restoration. This is the Christian life. This is what it means to be a part of a local church. This is what it means to be connected to the body of Christ. So listen, if you're looking for a church where you can just sort of come and sit and listen and sing and maybe like build your social network, guys, there are 50 churches around here that you can go do that. You can go to any, I can just, I can point you in any direction. There's a church where they kind of won't really care. That may sound harsh. Unfortunately, it is also true. But if you want to be a member of this body, we are committed to doing what we find in the life and example of Jesus. This is our Christian ministry to one another. We encourage, we exhort, we rebuke, we embrace the awkward conversations, having them and letting people have them with us. To say it another way, to say it the way the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, we are committed to speaking the truth in love and so building up the body of Christ. So if you're thinking about joining our church, I just want to ask you if you think you can entrust yourself to a congregation in this way. If not, that's okay. This is not the church for you. But I do want to ask you before you decide to find another church, what is the alternative? What's the alternative? Autonomy? Self-governance? All I need is me, the Holy Spirit, and my Bible? Do you think that that's the kind of Christian life that God is calling you to? Do you think you are the best arbiter of your own sin struggles? Do you think you're your own best accountability partner? If you were to sign up for Covenant Eyes because you struggle with watching pornography, and then when it asks you to list two accountability partners, you put me, myself, and I, would that seem wise, helpful, good? No. You remember Judas, right? He denied Christ. He was guilty. What did he do with his guilt? He tried to fix it on his own. Trying to handle his own guilt led to his destruction, but not Peter. Peter entrusted himself, even when it hurt, even when it embarrassed him. Remember, this conversation is happening in front of the other six disciples on the boat. But Peter submitted himself to the loving correction of Jesus in the context of community. And when he did that, he experienced the grace of reconciliation and restoration. Now, to the members of Sixth Avenue, you should know that every church has a Judas and a Peter. Every church. You will never find a church where someone does not betray the gospel. You just won't find it. Now, why does this matter? Because sometimes members will leave our church under discipline because they refuse to let us hold them accountable in love. And it never gets any easier. It never gets any easier. But I hope, on a note of encouragement as we wrap up this point, I hope that you see that the vast majority of what we experience in this church is not what Judas experienced. We experience the experience of Peter. The Lord Jesus confronts us in our sin, often through our brothers and sisters. And even though it hurts, even though it's hard, we receive it. We're grieved, we repent, and we experience reconciliation. That is happening far more than those who run from the loving accountability of the Lord. Okay, back to the story. Point number seven, feed my sheep. As Peter is restored and reconciled, Jesus says two things to him that we should focus on. Feed my sheep is the first thing he says. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't, tell Peter to sit around and stew in the guilt of his failure, right? You shouldn't make people sit around and stew in the guilt of their failures. 
If they're forgiven by God, you shouldn't continue to try to hold them under the waters of guilt. Jesus comes along, has the hard conversation. Peter repents. He is forgiven. Grace is real. Jesus says, okay, we're reconciled. Now get back to work. Now you'll notice the very specific language that Jesus uses here. He says, feed my sheep. Isn't this interesting? Peter's an apostle. He's going to be one of the most important apostles in the church as we move forward in the story of redemption. And yet he doesn't say your sheep. He says, feed my sheep. He's using the personal possessive pronoun. This wording, I think, must have been burned into Peter's heart and mind because later, as he's writing to other elders in the church, he talks about the church in this way. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. They belong to God. They're under your care for just a little while. So the point here is a simple one. The church belongs to Jesus. The church does not belong to an apostle. The church does not belong to a pastor. And the church does not belong to a pope. It really doesn't belong to a pope. To the elders of 6th Avenue, as well as the future elders of 6th Avenue, the sheep in this room are not yours. Do not treat them like they are yours. They belong to Jesus. Treat them accordingly. On the last day, you will have to give an account, not as the owner of the sheep, but as a steward of the sheep. So steward them well. Point number eight, follow me. This is the second thing that Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And like everything else that Jesus says in the book of John, there are sort of two layers to what Jesus is saying here. In verse 19, Jesus says, follow me. On the one hand, this just means get up and walk with me. If you look in verse 20, you see where uh, Peter is actually walking with Jesus, and then he looks back and he sees John sort of trailing behind them. So that's how we know that at least one level, Jesus literally means just get up and follow me. But there's a deeper layer here. Right? And we know that because of verses 18 and 19. Look there. <coughs> truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's using this metaphor and he says, listen, when you're young, your parents have to dress you. When you're old and decrepit, people are going to have to dress you. But this image of having to like lift up your arms so that someone can dress you is also the image of being lifted up for death on a cross. And Jesus says, I suffered in this way. And Peter, because I love you, you will have to suffer in this way too. He was telling him about the kind of death he would have to die. A horrible, terrible, gruesome, painful, shameful death. Now I don't want you to miss what's happening here. This is very significant. This is very significant. If you were to think about yourself in your relationship with God, and you think, I love God, and God loves me, therefore, what would be on the other side of that therefore? For most of us, on the other side of that sort of relational math equation would be, therefore, God won't let me suffer. Not only will God not let me suffer, but God certainly won't call me into suffering. But that math doesn't add up. Jesus has been saying this since the beginning of his ministry. He's been saying things like this. If anyone would come after me, follow me, be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know that Peter understood this because when he was writing to some of his own disciples, he said this. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. The math equation is actually like this. I love Jesus. 
Jesus loves me, therefore I am going to suffer like him. Now you may not die a death on a cross like Peter did, but you will certainly pick up your cross and carry it. You will die to yourself and to this world a million times before you go to be with Jesus and enjoy him forever. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I don't think I can say it better than him, so I'll just read this and then we'll move on to the next point. Rejoice. I need help. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but it's here. And that means we can do it by God's grace. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Point number nine, finish well. Have you ever heard anyone say, it's not how you start, but how you finish? That's how, when I was in the army and I used to have to do these, these PT tests, that's how I would always, that's what I would tell myself. Because they would say, go, and everyone would just boom, full sprint. And I would just sort of lumber along. You know, it took me about a good mile to kind of get my, my rhythm and cadence. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Now, I never finished well either, but that's neither here nor there. But that sentiment is it's true of Peter in his life and ministry. The early years of Peter's walk with Jesus were unstable, we'll say. And even in some of the later years, he still struggled to understand some of the implications of the gospel. But the Lord kept him. The Lord shaped him and the Lord refined him and used him. And Peter did finish well. So let's just take a moment and be honest. Some of us here have had a rough go in our walk with Jesus thus far. We've been like Peter, right? We've been super eager, but maybe also super stupid. But friends, we should be encouraged that God's grace is greater than our sin. Did you notice the language that Jonathan used in his prayer of praise earlier? He said, if we were to sit here and, and pray out all the sins we could confess, it would last a long time. That would be true, right? It would last a pretty long time. But if we were to sit here and pray all the things that you're worth being praised for, we would pray forever. God is bigger than our sin. And if we have been saved and reconciled and united to Christ there is hope that our rough beginning can have a glorious ending. And I don't just mean like on the last day you're going to make it to heaven by the skin of your teeth. I mean sanctification is real. You can go from being an apparently very immature Christian to someone that people look to and trust and admire and respect. I remember I discipled this guy. He lived in our home with us for how long, babe? Two, three years, something like that. As, as, I mean, I just, every day I was like, I don't know if he's really a Christian. You know, there was no fire. I would try to sort through the ashes of his life and look for just a speck of an ember. Is there something here? Is there really the Spirit of God? And somewhere along the way, this dude caught fire. Somewhere along the way, this dude who was the black sheep of the family, the weakest, most immature, most sensitive, most volatile person in his family, became the person that other people in the family looked up to. I have a question about the Bible. I don't know what I should do about this job. I'm struggling with my marriage. Can I talk to you about this? That can happen for you. Going back to what I said earlier about writing people off in this church, maybe you see someone who's kind of like an early Peter right now. You don't know what God may do in their life. They may be the pastor of this church one day. Finish well and believe that you can. Point number 10, follow me again. Follow me, the redux. So let's set the scene. Jesus told Peter how he would die as they walked gently along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then Peter looks back and he sees that John is following behind them. Look at verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
Peter, perhaps innocently, perhaps not, he asked Jesus, okay, how's he going to die? Right? What about him? And look at Jesus' response in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, there's no exclamation mark in the original Greek, but I think that they're right to put that here. Jesus tells Peter what I always tell my kids when they're asking me about their sibling. Worry about yourself. You worry about you. I want to tell you the same thing this morning. Don't worry about whether or not you are suffering more than someone else or if your suffering is unique compared to someone else that you know, another Christian. Why is my marriage harder than theirs? Why are my kids struggling worse than their kids? Why is my health? Friends, we are all just fighting to survive. We are all struggling. We are all hurting. That doesn't mean that some people don't suffer more than others. But comparison is the thief of joy. We would all do well just to focus on the path that the Lord has laid out for us. It's enough that we can do to just focus on ourselves. Don't compound your confusion and anxiety and fear by also trying to take on the burden of someone else's life. Just bite down on your mouthpiece, take a deep breath, and rejoice as you walk the path of suffering that the Lord has prepared for you. Point number 11. Why we need the Bible. Look at verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I love this verse. This is one of the coolest verses in the Bible, I think. You guys remember the telephone game? Right, you say one word and then it goes around the circle and by the time it comes back to you, it's a big jumbled mess. That's kind of what John says has happened with this story in the early church. Jesus had a word for Peter about John's future. And the word was, worry about yourself. <laughs> okay? And then as the story spread, it began to be distorted. It was close to right, almost right, but not quite right. And this is one of the reasons why the Lord inspired John to write the gospel down. What we see here is that God uses the gospel writers to protect the church from errors, myths, and legends regarding his life, ministry, and message. It's true that the gospel story did spread through oral tradition in the early years of the church. And I believe that the Lord providentially protected the passing of those stories orally. And I think one of the ways that he did it was by raising up gospel writers to come along and correct stories that may have gotten confused in the translation game of the telephone, right? The telephone game is funny because it so accurately represents human-to-human communication. Words get messed up. Details are wrong even when we're communicating about really important things. But in verse 23, we see that God has appointed someone who was actually there to write the story down and to come back and correct any errors that were beginning to crop up in the early church. Look at verse 24. This is John speaking (laughs) of himself in third person as he's prone to do. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things And we know that his testimony is true. John saying, guys, I was there. My testimony is true. Believe. Point number 12. How wonderful. How marvelous. What do y'all think we're going to sing for our last song this morning? Uh, I recently submitted a finished manuscript of a book-length version of my testimony. It should be out sometime this year. It feels really awkward to say that. I'm not even going to look at you. (laughs) It is what it is. Somebody asked me to do it. I did it. I think the Lord will use it. I hope he does. 
Now, I sent this manuscript to a few people that I know uh, just to get their feedback. And outside of an abundance of encouragement, one of the main things that I heard in response was actually a question. Oh, man, it was so good, but why didn't you include this story? Because you guys know me. I'm a storyteller, right? Story time with Sean. I'm always telling stories about my life. And people have their favorites, right? People have their favorites. And they why didn't you put that story in, in the book, Sean? Well, because I was trying to write the story in a very particular way, which meant that I had to exclude some things. Writers call this killing your darling. You have something very precious that you want to keep in the story or in the sermon or in the book. It's, it's so meaningful to you, but it actually doesn't serve the purpose of the writing, so you have to murder your darlings. The same thing is true of John. John, this, this gospel could have been 50 times thicker than it is. John did not write down every last jot and tittle of Jesus' life and ministry because he was trying to tell his story in a very particular way. But I love what he says at the very end, with a flourish. He says in verse 25, There are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. Now this is a little rhetorical flourish, right? But you get his point. If you just consider Jesus' active ministry, three years from baptism to resurrection, and we're not talking about weekend ministry or part-time ministry or even 50-hour workweek ministry. We're talking about full-time, 24-hour-a-day, minus sleep, ministry. <clears throat> Think about what that means for what Jesus did. Every word that Jesus spoke was true and life-giving. Every decision that Jesus made was good and beneficial for the kingdom. Every interaction that Jesus had was in complete agreement with the will of the Father and the mission of God. Every prayer was a perfect and answered prayer. Every lesson and sermon could be plumbed for eons without exhausting the resources therein. And then here in this final statement, we see John's humble recognition that Although he was there with Jesus, he's still a creature trying to write about his creator. And there's a limit on that. He says, guys, I've only just begun to tell you about Jesus. And that's how I feel as we wrap John's gospel. As I finish a long-ish sermon, I feel like, guys, I've... I've only just begun to tell you. I've only just begun to comprehend as I've spent... You know, 30 hours a week, every week that I've been in this book studying it, I feel like I've only just scratched the surface. I've only just begun to wrap my mind around my Savior. I feel like as a congregation, we've barely scratched the surface of His glory. We've only had the slightest taste of His goodness and mercy and grace. Remember what the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we've been tasting every single Sunday for an hour, we have been tasting and tasting and tasting. And I feel like we've only just begun. Which is why I can't wait to get to heaven. Right? Because when we get to heaven, we're going to get to do this forever. We're going to get to plumb the depths of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. We're going to plumb the depths of that forever it's going to be limit god is you heard jonathan again pray this morning god is infinite that means we can explore him without limits forever and we will enjoy every second of it and we will enjoy it i think sequentially more with every second that we explore him because we're going to have more of a knowledge that will increase our appetite which means that we'll keep feasting and we'll have more hunger and it's just going to go on like that forever and ever and ever nothing but satisfaction Enjoy. But the whole purpose why John wrote this gospel was not to whet our appetites for heaven. The whole purpose, that's part of it, but it's not all of it. The, the reason why John wrote this gospel is so that those who don't know Jesus would taste and see that he's good. He wrote this book so that you would believe if you don't know him. So if you're here this morning... I want to encourage you to taste 
and to see that the Lord is good. Eternity awaits you. You can spend all of eternity enjoying and exploring the reality of God, his goodness and grace, or you can spend eternity coming to have a deeper and deeper understanding of only one of his attributes, his justice. The doors of mercy are thrown wide open, and Jesus is calling you home today. So I pray that you'll come. Let's pray. Father, I am um, weak. I'm nothing. But your word is everything. It is sufficient. It is powerful. It is living and active. And so we pray that it will do its work in our hearts. We pray this with great hope. In Jesus' name, amen.